Let us go to God in prayer this morning. Father God, we come before you now with praise and thanksgiving, thankful that you are creator, you are ruler of our lives, and through all things, you pour out your grace upon us. So open our ears to hear and our hearts as we hear your word today. Be with us, and may we take what we hear and go forward to share the good news with others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Today we are continuing in week three of our series called The Thread, and we're walking through major parts of Scripture from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end to Revelation to where we see the return of Christ And as we see in our weekly readings, Jesus is just not in the Gospels. He's all over every page of Scripture. And as we walk through and conclude this series at Easter, I hope that you will see that Jesus has always been the goal, the hope, and the rescue for all of us. Now, last week, Jonathan took us through the readings of creation, And in creation, we see two primary purposes of God's creation, glory and gift. Now, all things point to God's glory and in his glory, and God gives us the gift of life. And if you're following this reading guide series, as you read in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of humankind, we remember we see Adam and Eve's disobedience that caused not only a physical but a spiritual separation from their relationship with God. And that separation has plagued humankind from that point forward all the way till today and is still representative of our relationship with him today. And as we went through those readings in Genesis, particularly chapters 6 through 10, we saw the history of the flood where God decided he was going to wipe out everything that he had created with the exception of Noah, Noah's wife, his three sons, their three wives, and two animals of every kind. But even starting over... That did not eliminate the sin problem, and that separation still existed between humankind and God. And so, as we come to our thread today, the period recorded in Genesis, beginning in chapter 12 and going all the way to the last chapter of 50 in Genesis, we call this period the time of the patriarchs. Now, this time begins with a man called Abram, which his name was later changed to Abraham, and it walks through the lives of his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and his great-grandson Joseph. Now, the Hebrew people viewed their patriarchs as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as we saw in our readings this week, Jacob himself wrestled with God, and God changed his name and called him Israel. And it is with Jacob, or Israel's son Joseph, that we saw the family eventually up in Egypt with the life of Joseph mirroring the life of Jesus many years later. In fact, Joseph serves as a type of Jesus to prefigure, foreshadow, point to, whisper of the one who would come to save the world. 
Now, we could spend weeks on each of these figures, but today I want to focus on the first patriarch, and that is the head of the family, Abraham. We have a lot of scripture to cover today, so I invite those of you that are here or at home to open your Bibles and follow along. And if you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen. So we're going to begin today in Genesis chapter 12, and let's read together. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed." Now let's stop there for a minute. Let's think about our time period here. Hundreds of years has passed since the flood. This region of the earth we would call the Middle East is repopulated again. There's no one who knows God. There's no relationship with the Creator. This is a world of pagans, a world of idol worshipers, many different gods, evil and chaos rule the day. And all of a sudden, God calls one man named Abram, and he tells him to pack up his belongings, his family, everything he has, and go to a land which will be shown to him. And not only that, but God tells Abram that he's going to make of him a great nation, and in him all of the families of the earth will be blessed. It is in this passage that the history of the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel, begins. So let's pick back up in Genesis. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all of their possessions they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Church, this is a remarkable story. Remember from our readings after the flood, that man's lifespan was shortened. No longer did they live the many hundreds of years they did prior to the flood. In fact, it, Scripture says that man's would be no more than 120 years. Abraham was 75 years old when he heard the voice of God calling to him to pack up, leave his home, and go to a place that he doesn't even know about. And Abraham did it. He did it to a God he did not know. And Scripture doesn't even record that he hesitated or had a second thought about it. Let's look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now we're going to skip down to chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. Let's read. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, 
northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Think about this. A 75-year-old man who has uprooted his family at the request of an unknown God comes to this land that God tells him to, and not only does he tell him he's going to give him this land, but he's going to give him offspring, which will be like the dust of the earth. Abraham is 75 years old, and he's childless. Can you imagine what's racing through Abraham's mind through all this, even though he did obey? What, possibly, what have I done? Who in the world have I listened to? Who is this God? Have I lost my mind? I know those would be some questions I would have. But I want us to come to Genesis 15, and I want us to look at the words of the Lord here. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house, Eliezer, is in, of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, the number of stars, and if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness." Church, I want you to underline that sentence. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's important for us for the rest of today to keep that verse in our mind. Go to verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. And here, here's the dimensions. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenzazites, the Kadamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Lots of promises, Right? Get up and go. I'm giving you this land. You're going to have offspring as much as the dust of the earth and as numerous as the stars in the sky. What was God doing? What he was doing was placing his plan in motion. And that plan would be accomplished with a covenant with a man who didn't even know who God was, but did blindly what God asked of him and that with that began a covenant relationship now 
we're going to step out of the story and talk a little bit because we, we've got to go over some terminology here. We rarely talk or hear the word covenant these days. And when we do, in our culture, it's often used interchangeably with a contract, the word contract. And this presents a problem for us because covenant is critically important in the concept in Scripture. And it has a specific definition that distinguishes it today from what we're so familiar with as a contract. So let's try to understand the difference between contracts and covenants. And we'll start with that which we're probably all familiar with, a contract. And then a contract is typically an agreement between two or more parties, okay? Where each party seeks a benefit that the other party can provide. In other words, contracts are centered on getting something from someone else. Contracts typically have certain conditions and specific terms, and each party agrees to complete those terms or conditions, and failure to do so will violate the contract. And then it offers that other party the opportunity to escape from their obligations from it. Now, what are some examples of contracts today? The most typical one for us adults is a mortgage. I mean, when we bought our house, we took out a mortgage to pay for it. And if you've ever bought a house with a mortgage, you know how many papers you have to sign as part of that contract, right? In essence, the bank bought the house for us and allows us to live in it when we repay them on a schedule set forth in the contract. Each month, we pay a certain amount of money, and as long as we do that, we are allowed to continue to live in the house, and you have property taxes and insurance and so forth that come, come through that as well. But the bottom line is the bank wanted to make money. We wanted a home, and so we entered into a binding contract with that lending institution. But if we fail to meet those obligations, the other party can void the contract. If we don't pay, we lose the house. There are other contracts in life that we probably sign each and every day and we don't even think about it. A health club membership. When you join that health club, you're signing a contract that you're going to pay a monthly fee and in exchange, you're going to get use of the exercise equipment. The facilities will be clean and uh, they'll provide classes and so forth. So you entered that contract to have a place to work out, and the health club entered in that contract because it wants to make money. Some of you have signed contracts for your kids for music lessons or for baseball training or football training. So you get the gist then of a contract. Then what is a covenant? And I want to narrow this down just a little bit more to a biblical covenant, and in fact, let's go even a little bit further and call it a divine covenant that is initiated only by God. So what is a divine covenant? A divine covenant is a binding agreement or promise initiated by God between him and one or more parties. Now, there are two forms of divine covenants. There are conditional divine covenants and unconditional divine covenants. 
And a conditional covenant is just as the name suggests. It's a covenant with conditions placed on the humans involved. Think of it as this. If then God will do this. If the person does A, God will do B. Now, what distinguishes this from a contract, as soon as the person does A, God's going to do B no matter what. There's no opt out of it. God's covenant makes it binding forever. Now, an unconditional covenant is also, as its name suggests, it's a covenant with no conditions placed on the promises that are made. There is no if-then aspect. God simply promises to do something, and it's binding. Because these divine covenants are initiated by God, they are backed by his character. That is why they are absolutely reliable. And furthermore, they are initiated by God for his glory and for our good. Unlike contracts which are motivated by a self-directed desire by each party involved. Divine contracts have no outward nature. God is making a promise that benefits the person or the person involved. Let's look at two divine contracts in our reading. One is conditional and one is unconditional. Back in the Noah story in Genesis, there is an unconditional binding contract initiated by God and directed toward Noah and everyone afterwards, all of humanity. And in this covenant, this God simply promises never to flood the world again. There are no conditions placed on Noah or humanity to do anything. That is simply a binding covenant by God. Uh, next week, we're going to be reading about the Exodus. We're going to get to Moses, and we're going to find a different type of covenant with the Hebrew people, where God tells the Hebrew people, if you do this, then I will do this. And that is a conditional covenant. Let's read on and see if you can determine the type of covenant God made with Abraham. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to read um, a little bit here. Very important chapter. By this time, Abraham has a son named Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both they went together, both of them, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. 
He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So when they went, both of them together, and when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on top of the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the, took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now let's stop there. Can you imagine? God makes an earlier promise to Abraham that his offspring will be as numerous as the sand and the stars. You have a son, and he tells you then to take him and sacrifice him to him. You go through this agonizing process, you, this test, and God at the very end is he's getting ready to stab the dagger in, spares Isaac from death. And then God reiterates his covenant with Abraham because you have done this. You see, this covenant was initiated by God, and some people argue whether it was conditional or unconditional. Either way, Abraham left his land, and as soon as he did, the covenant became unconditional. You see, from the very beginning, Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness. And church, I want you to hear this. As soon as a conditional contract is met with God, it turns unconditional and it is forever. It is done and it cannot be broken by God. You see, God's promises in this covenant can be summarized by three words, land, seed, and blessing. God promised Abraham that he would give him a new home, which we now know as Israel and the promised land. 
in seed. God promised Abraham that he would have a son, and it is through this son he would have many offspring, and that the whole world would be blessed. In blessing, God promised Abraham that not only would he bless him, but he was going to bless all of the people of the world through Abraham. So I hope you see that this Abraham covenant was a major turning point in our redemptive history. In this one divine covenant, God promised that he's forming a people, a seed, which would be part of his kingdom, land, by salvation, which is blessing. Seed, land, and blessing. And Jesus is the core of this threefold promise. That is why his first recorded words in ministry were repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, trust in me, blessing, because I am your king, seed, who has arrived in his kingdom, the land. You see, Jesus takes the old covenant and he gives us what we call a new covenant. Let's look in the Gospel of Luke. When the disciples were with Jesus at that Passover meal, what we know as the Last Supper, and look at the verse 22. Verses 19 through 20, sorry. And he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Hear that, new covenant in my blood. You see, Jesus' new covenant restores us to that pre-fall relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God. It's why Jesus came. It's not a contract. It is a covenant. And it is conditional, divine covenant for one thing, is faith in him. Believing that Jesus came for you, died for you, rose for you, took care of your sins once and for all creates then an unconditional covenant that will never, ever, ever be broken. And sadly, church, I see many people in this world that treat their relationship like of, with Jesus like it's a contract. Jesus, if you'll do this, I'll do this. Come on, Jesus, I want you to do this. If you'll just do this, I'll do this. And if you don't take anything from this message today, please hear this, church. Our relationship with Jesus is never contractual. It is not works-based. It exists because of a covenant that he, being God on earth, gave to us. All we have to do is place our faith in him, and just like the faith of Abraham had, Jesus will credit it to us as righteousness, and we will be back in relationship. It is a conditional covenant that turns unconditional, never to be broken again. And we struggle with that, because we continue to go back to that 
contractual mindset to when we think that we do something wrong, Jesus can't possibly love me, or Jesus will not hold on to me. And folks, that is not a covenant. That is a contract, and it does not exist in our relationship with Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews states it best. Let's look at Hebrews 9, verse 15. Hear this. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus mediates our new covenant with him. The old is history. We're now living in a new. What are you going to do with this? If you've not placed your faith in Christ, I, I beg of you to reconsider, pray about this, because he desires this relationship with you. He desires to be in a covenant relationship that once you have placed your faith in him will never, ever, ever be broken. The old is history. We're living in the new. Let's get out of these walls and share this good news with the world that so desperately needs it. Let us pray. Oh God, we come before you now. Help us to understand our relationship with you. It's through your death, burial, resurrection. It's through the new covenant that we have hope. We have eternal life. We don't operate in contract with you, we operate in covenant that can never be broken. Help us to hear that. Help us to realize this. Help us to go share this with others as we move forth this week. Be with us and be with those in this world each and every day. In Jesus' name and the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.